Blog Talk Radio. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. Right now, 
uh, play this. This is, this is called God Made Me and You by Shailen. Yeah. He made us all, yo. Yeah. God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. No. He did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees. From lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they God they are praising. The differences cry out, God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. never the same. Each person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as the gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. We see what God's love is about There's no type of person that Jesus left out Because Jesus died and rose from the grave All those who trust in the Lord will be saved In the book of Revelation, chapter number 7 The church from all times is gathered in heaven Each tribe and people, language and nation All thanking God for the gift of salvation Together, forever, with saints of all kinds Through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine This is exactly what God has designed When God made me and you, let's go no, we all Shepherding the Remnant. 
and thanks for listening to me. Let's catch us here on Trippy Toll Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John that unpacks 15 Greek words in Scripture that explain a stunning paradox, how a God of perfect justice can show mercy to sinners who deserve only punishment. Request your free booklet titled 15 Words of Hope by writing to hope at gty.org. That's hope at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through June 2023. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. John, we are so glad you're here. (laughs) Thank you. And that, in and of itself, is a providence. Uh, You are probably not supposed to be here as far as recovery time goes. Uh, Most people wait about six months for recovery. You're six weeks, I think, classic MacArthur, total jock, total warrior, total lion. So, but you're here. So give the men an update. What has Providence done in these last few months? How are you feeling? Uh, are you done with extreme motor sports? Just let us, let us know where you're at, MacArthur. Well, uh, I feel great. I've, I felt good, uh, really, generally speaking, before it became apparent that I had uh, some arteries blocked. Um, and coming out of that, that was completely successful, for which I'm... I'm thankful, and since then I've I felt great. The challenge for me has been to handle the medication. I'm, I'm not a good drug addict. You, you walked you walked into a pastor's meeting. You walked into a pastor's meeting a few weeks ago. Uh, this is a very memorable moment, and he sat down and said, "This meeting is brought to you by Pfizer." <laughs> Which, coming from MacArthur, is a very meaningful sentence. Yeah, so there's obviously there's some recovery time. Um, it just turned out, too, that I was in the hospital 10 days because they did two procedures and there was a weekend that they weren't operating. So it just made me in, languish in the hospital for 10 days. You have to recover from that. Um, yeah, so and I've never been this age before. So I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, but yeah, I, I, feel, I feel great. Every day I, I get a little stronger, a little better. Um, a few months from now, probably back to yeah. normal or even better than normal. In fact, when I went in for the procedure, the surgeon said to me, were you bedridden at home before this incident? And I said, no. He said, were you on a walker? And I said, no, I was playing golf. <laughs> so he said, you have a very strong heart. So, uh, in fact, when the procedure was over, he commented on the health and the strength of my heart. So that aspect of it, um, the Lord was kind. Um, You know, I don't want to overstay my welcome, but um, I'm happy to still be here. Uh, We are are more than happy that you're still with us. And, yeah. yeah.
And since I've never been this age before and don't know how to handle it, uh, I had a run-in with an immovable object. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I tried to take it on with my, my arm and my yeah. head. Yeah. And um, I was unsuccessful. Yeah. So there's a fracture in one of the small bones in the wrist, yeah. uh, which put me into a very difficult situation because I can't turn the pages of a Bible. Right. So, um, along with a lot of other things I can't do. Uh, so, I'm trying to figure out what the future looks like. But yeah. I want to speak tomorrow night okay. uh, because I've got a lot on my heart. So, there. They're, they're doing tutorials with me to, to help me swipe an iPad. This is a sure sign of the end time. I think so. So if I can, if I can navigate that, that, that'll be fine. But yeah, I, I feel very well. Um, I, just, I was messing around with something to help Patricia yeah. and um, stepped over the line of my limitations. And yeah, no, we, we, we all want you to preach. We all want you back, but we want you rested. We want you well. We want you to take as much time as, as you need. I mean, this is... This is just phenomenal that you're here, and we're just grateful to spend this time with you. And uh, your influence is where the Shepherds Conference came from. Uh, this, the presence of these brothers here, looking for the refreshment and encouragement and equipping that comes from a week like this, is something that you uh, had in your heart a long time ago. So let's talk about that first, and then I want to get you to go ahead and preach the message uh, chair version that we missed yesterday. But let's talk about Shepherd's Conference at the outset. What is this thing? Where did it start? How, what was the vision behind it? Uh, how did you architect this whole concept? Well, I, I don't know that it was my intention at all. I, I didn't say, well, this is a great idea. Let's do this. What happened is in the, in the early years as Grace Church began to grow, um, we had more and more people saying, what is going on there? I remember Moody Monthly did a magazine article called uh, The Church with 900 Ministers, and they were, they were surprised at the functioning of the body of Christ in what was the church in the chapel. That's all that was here. Uh, and uh, one of their lead writers came and wrote this article, and it, it attracted attention. It was, it was around the time that Fuller Seminary was running the School of Church Growth uh, kind of a historic moment that came and went. And so there was a lot of interest in church growth and what was going on here. So people were coming regularly. I mean, they were bringing classes from Talbot and from Fuller to the church, and pastors were dropping by to see what we were doing. So it, it occurred to me that if there was that much interest, why don't, we, why don't we just jam them all into one week so we don't have to keep repeating ourselves? And that's what led to the first shepherd's conference, and uh, it was, I don't know, maybe two or three hundred guys over in the chapel. And then we, we, for a while, we had two a year to accommodate them. Then we kind of shut it down and reinvented it. I don't, I don't remember exactly how many years ago, 15 maybe, and it became what it is now. Yeah, well, I know that these brothers are, are grateful for the existence of the Shepherds Conference. How many of you are here for the very first time? Raise your hand. Yeah. 
Amazing. Yeah. Welcome, brothers. Good to, good to have you. How many of you, uh, and Dr. Lawson testified to the Shepherds Conference role in his life and ministry all those years ago in the, the smaller version. How many of you were here in those, that was original iteration of the Shepherds Conference? Before it was a big conference, when it, when it met kind of in another room. How many of you are old school Shepherds Conference guys? So there's still... Uh, what a blessing. Well, there's a remnant right there. MacArthur. There's a remnant. Yeah, and by the way, too, it was obvious to me that the Lord didn't want me to preach that message yesterday. Okay. He wanted Steve to preach the, the message that he preached. That's evident from Providence, right? Yeah. You know about that. You were talking about it. I believe in it. So MacArthur's been faithfully live streaming the conference, like like yeah, the people who didn't register on time. It's been it's been tremendous for me, tremendously encouraging for me, and I I wanted to be a part of it, and I was hoping uh, you could fit me in today. Yeah. Well, we're delighted that you're here, and so let's talk about your vision behind this particular Shepherds Conference theme. Uh, the idea of the remnant, of shepherding the remnant, uh, that, that was the volley you wanted to send. Why don't you give us kind of what, what you, was in your heart behind that concept, obviously a, a biblical uh, important issue and connection throughout the scriptures, which we've seen in a number of ways, but what was your vision behind this idea of shepherding the remnant? Well, the objective was to define ministry, to define ministry in the church. If you're a shepherd or a pastor, the the Scripture defines your ministry. And you could go to John 21, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Did you hear me? I just said that three times in a row. So if you're looking for a, a definition of ministry, feed my sheep. Peter got the message. He didn't always get the message. He got that message. And then in his epistle, he wrote, Feed, shepherd the flock of God. And what I see missing in the church today, generally speaking, is that commitment to feed the flock of God. There's there's an inordinate affection, strange to say, for the culture. There's a driving um, desire that's twisted to reach the culture. Uh, You can go back to Tim Keller's mandates for urban renewal or Andy Stanley welcoming all the homosexuals because he he wants to to reach them. But pastoral ministry is is not about changing the culture. In the end, and if you define it theologically, your, your church will never have anyone who's a genuine member who's not part of the remnant. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to accomplish anything that the Lord hasn't already decreed. Hmm. And I don't want to be irresponsible about evangelism because he, he chose the people and the means. But I think ministry has been woefully lacking to the souls of the people of God. And so they have struggled and they have been wounded. Um, 
they have been without biblical teaching, without solid doctrine, without nourishing truth. While everybody is worried about what the world thinks and making sure we identify with the world and its style and its music and all of that, when feeding the flock of God is how we discharge our ministry and how the Lord builds his church. So so it just seemed that this was a time to remind everybody of the remnant. And so what I had planned to say yesterday was that if you look at Scripture, it's, it's crystal clear um, that God works through a remnant. And the first indication of that is in the book of Genesis, where you have Enoch. This is a remnant from Adam's family. And the next one is Noah. You think about it, most estimates are that the the world at the flood would have 750 million people. Out of that, God chose eight people. I mean, that is a stunning reality. And they weren't that great. (laughs) Couldn't he have picked eight other people? And remember that Noah, for 120 years, was a preacher of righteousness, essentially. And when it was all 120 years, and when it was over, there were eight people, and they were all in his family. And then he starts a new humanity. And it's not long until the the new world has completely gone to seed and they're worshiping false gods, so they build a ziggurat, the Tower of Babel. And the Lord has to punish and judge and separate them because they're so corrupt that they're, they're going to have to be divided up to, to be able to sort of hold each other mutually accountable. And, and out of that, um, there comes another new humanity. Uh, God identifies a Chaldean moon worshiper, you said, by the name of Abraham, and says, I pick you. Uh, and, and Abraham is the father of a new humanity, both in the nation Israel, and so much as he identified with the remnant that Paul even says, all of us who are in Christ are Abraham's children, because we have the the faith that Abraham had. So there's a new humanity, and it's a small, nondescript, tiny tribe of people. And again, there's a lot of noble things about Jewish um, characteristics and DNA and all of that. But with all the privilege they had, I mean, they just basically disobeyed God throughout their entire history. So they wound up getting judged again and again and again and again. But they represent the remnant. Um, Then you look at Moses, and Moses takes them out of Egypt. And there could have been two million or so, but they were so disobedient to the Lord that they couldn't even go into the promised land. had to be a new generation. This is another remnant. They get in the land, and they're supposed to do the right thing, 
and they don't, and you go a few more hundred years and you come to Elijah, and Elijah says, I only, I am left, and the Lord has to remind him, look, I've got 7,000. That would be about one half of 1% of the population. So it's a stunning pattern of God choosing the few. And you come into the New Testament, as Steve was saying, and you've got the little flock. Few there be that find it. Narrow gate, narrow way. So much so that the disciples asked the question, will anybody be saved? Is anybody going to be saved? And you come to the day of Pentecost, and there's 120 believers in the hundreds of thousands of people in Israel who have been exposed to the ministry of the Son of God for three years. And it's still a remnant. Uh, that's, the, that's where it all begins. And then 3,000 are converted that day, added to the 120. And a little later in the book of Acts, 5,000 men, it says, were converted. And the church continues to be a remnant. And we understand that our Lord said that the wheat and the tares are going to be together. So even the visible church itself has within it a remnant. And that just seems to be the pattern all the way through Scripture until you get to the very end when all the ungodly are judged and the remnant enters into the kingdom of Christ. So when the Lord says, feed my sheep, uh, take the oversight, and you have all the instruction in the epistles. It just strikes me that we can't reinvent the plan. We have to be faithful to it. And that's what Paul said when he said it's required of stewards that a man be faithful. So what does faithfulness look like? Let me get some water because there's all that medication. Mac, you're preaching. You're over here. Where's your notes? Where's... Where's this, where's this all coming from? Well, I was prepared to preach. <laughs> I just got benched. We're tracking. This is, this is really helpful. So you've traced the remnant from Genesis to Revelation, and now you're talking well, about you, what that you, you go means into Revelation, for Go into Revelation and look at the seven churches. Yeah. And within the seven churches, you have a remnant called overcomers. The, even the seven churches weren't the true people of God. The, the, there was a remnant in, the, in those locations. Um, you know, I mean, it, some of them were worldly. The Sardis church was dead. Laodicea was nauseating. But the Lord would always put a blessing on those who were overcomers, and, and it was their faith that overcame. So I think when you understand the sovereignty of God, that he is gathering his people, you understand pastoral ministry is to turn those people into the purest worshipers possible. So that's your responsibility. Not to make everything super simplistic, not to try to convince people who 
won't believe through some means or mechanism or compromise that they should believe, but rather to build the saints up so they can be fully committed to worshiping and serving and glorifying God. Um, anything less than that, you fail to fulfill your ministry. You, you, you can't be worried about how many people you have or uh, how many aren't there and how many empty seats there are. You're responsible to heaven for the occupied seats. So that that was the introduction to the message that I didn't give yesterday. But the, the main body of that message was Jeremiah 23. Oh, I was going to add one of their Isaiah 6, where Isaiah gets his commission at the end of the 6th chapter, 8 to 13. Um, he says, who, who will I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And the Lord says to him, go and understand this, that they won't hear, they won't see, they won't understand. Well, that's, that's a pretty discouraging commission. And Isaiah responds by saying, how long? How long do I do that? And, and the Lord says to him, until there's not a person left, you just keep doing that. Why? In that final verse, he says, because there's a remnant. It's, it's, he uses the illustration of a, of a tree being cut down, but the stump remains, and it still has life in it. And he says the stump is the holy seed. Again, holy meaning separated. So Isaiah, your job is to reach the holy seed and to minister to them. That is the remnant. And that that uh, idea of they're going to hear and not understand, and that, that's repeated four times in the New Testament in other circumstances by our Lord, by the Apostle Paul. So that's a, that, that's a long-time principle. Uh, now, with that in mind, that, that the remnant is the object of our ministry, uh, I went to um, Jeremiah 23, and you might want to look at that for a minute. Maybe I can do this one-handed. Jeremiah 23, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. You want a woe, there's a woe on the shepherds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. And then he goes even beyond that 
to the Messiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Then down in verse 9, but as for the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I've become like a drunken man, even like a man overcome with wine because of the Lord, because of his holy words. Taking the calling to shepherd the flock of God seriously. Uh, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Uh, his heart was broken over the condition of the sheep. The land was full of adulterers. The land mourned. And Jeremiah goes on to, to indict these shepherds uh, on a number of fronts. They had no concern. They had no virtue. Um, they had no integrity. They had no truth. Um, just one thing after another, all the way from verse 9 to the end of the chapter. So I was going to just go through that. It would be good for you guys to read that chapter and understand that God's, God's morality hasn't changed and God's tolerances and intolerances haven't changed since Jeremiah's day. They, they never change any, in any way. So that was the, the emphasis at the end of the message was going to be you better take care of the remnant because you've been entrusted with them and you will give an account to the Lord for how you cared for His beloved sheep. I don't know a more serious calling than that. And to ignore them or to treat them with indifference without the broken-hearted concern of a Jeremiah over their sin while you're preoccupied with some kind of style or some kind of popularity or some cultural issue or some social cause has nothing to do with the calling to the ministry. So that was it. That was awesome. And <laughs> Mac, how does that... I mean, for a benched guy, you still preached it, so you, get, you got it out there. But, I mean, there's so many implications to draw from that, isn't there? I mean, what, what's this say about expository preaching, MacArthur? They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. Yeah, they had no truth. L later on, he says, they tell you their dreams. Yeah. And here's, a dead, here's something you'll all identify with. They steal each other's material. They, they plagiarize. And that's in that same chapter. So they're making up the message. They're inventing it themselves. It doesn't come from the, the text of Scripture. Their own visions, their own insights, they are the source of their message. Yeah. Therefore, behold, verse 30, I'm against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. There's your, your reference. Mm -hmm. 
the verse right before that, again, is just underlining how these ministers that you're, you're charging, that you're seeing in continuity with the Apostle Paul and Isaiah and Jeremiah, have to only speak the Word of God is my Word, speak my Word in truth, and saying, is not my Word like a fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer which shatters a rock. Yeah, two of, the great on the word. two of the great descriptions of the Scripture, fire and the hammer. That's force. That's energy. That's power. Um, there, there's a missing uh, trust. There's a void in much of the evangelicalism when it comes to conceiving what the power of the Word of God really is. Um, I mean, we, we, we know what the Bible says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So the power is in the text and the truth of the text. But that, that chapter is so interesting because you can identify as you go through it things that you're familiar with today, like plagiarism and dreams and inventing your own message and he even talks about the fact that there's adultery, there's a tolerance for evil, there are pastors who don't want to confront. In fact, in that chapter, he, the Lord says, um, you have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's, that's powerful in our day because there is an escalating tolerance of homosexuality in the evangelical movement today, all predicated on the idea that the power of ministry is in the style of the preacher. And somehow, if you tolerate sin, if you affirm people in their perversion, you're going to win them over. And of course, I, I think homosexuality is, is at the root of... I would say most of the ills in our current culture, and it's it's managed to crawl over into the church, um, and the church tolerating that is only manifesting its pragmatism, its bad theology, its indifference toward the heart of God, and its lack of genuine compassion for sinners. And that's the remarkable thing is it's, it's the winsomeness is usually in exchange for the truth. But what you're saying is that it's lacking compassion. What Jeremiah is saying is it's straw instead of grain. Exactly. Yeah, you think you're, you think you're being loving when you couldn't do anything less loving than to have any kind of an attitude towards sin other than a broken heart. And I think that's, that's what ministers need to hear from you, MacArthur, is the, the long enduring effects of a ministry that we've seen here at Grace Church over these years have been 54 years of preaching the Word of God and letting the Spirit of God be the one that determines the results, not your machinations or plan, but letting the truth of God speak and watching God work in the lives of, of His people. Right. The, the one thing I knew at the outset when I came was God promised to honor His Word. And I was never going to deviate from that 
because that's where his promise was established. Um, and I've also learned over the years, Paul said, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. And what you have after 50 years of teaching the Word is not people who are doctrinally hard. It's people who are filled with love. And I think you guys feel that. You experience that when you're here just interacting with our people. Because where the Word of God does its work, the hearts of people are softened. And uh, there's compassion. There's passion for truth. There's love for people. That is the goal of biblical instruction. So this whole idea of the remnant applied says that we can continue to preach the word and only the word because God will faithfully continue to call his own people to himself, preserve them in a godless culture. The minister's job is to to focus on the word and applying that word to those people, watching it sanctify the people and work in the people. So many of these brothers have experienced just in the last few years, as we have at our church, tremendous upheaval. Uh, lots of new people coming during Corona days. Uh, some guys, churches have doubled in size as they kept their doors open. We experienced a huge influx of growth here. Uh, talk about how, though we're, we're ministering to what appears to be and what is this tiny remnant of people, we still see the Spirit's work and gospel fruit and progress. Help bring those things together. Well, you know, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. So pastoral ministry doesn't exclude that. Because if you're handling the Word of God, the gospel is everywhere. In, in the Word of God. So you're always going through the Gospel. Uh, you, you take any message on sin will necessarily lead to the Gospel. Any message on righteousness would lead to the Gospel. Uh, any message on life and death, the afterlife, heaven, hell, uh, the, the Gospel is everywhere. You heard Josiah, who would have thunk that the gospel would be in Zephaniah. But embedded in your preaching by the Spirit of God is plenty of gospel truth. And you preach that with all your heart and your congregation displays what a transformed life looks like. And that's one of the marks of true revival, right? Right. And there's a lot of talk about revival. This is, this is not the first uh, kind of revival or, or claim revival that's been in the news lately that you've seen in your life and ministry. You were, you were present for the Jesus movement in Southern California. Uh, there's been other times in your ministry and history where even at this church you've seen tremendous growth. So a lot of people are talking about revival right now. Uh, what have you been thinking as, as that's been in the news as of late? Well, I think, I think they throw the word around without understanding it. Um, look, that 
whatever is going on there can have multiple impacts. It's conceivable, of course, that some some of the kids at Asbury or some other school um, confess their sin, uh, express love for Christ, uh, have a fresh desire to read His Word, to serve Him. But the thing that is troublesome is when you blanket it all with the word revival. It's, it's, it's everything. It's everything from people trying to cast out demons, from LGBTQ, the alphabet people as Vody calls them. It's everything from them leading the worship and leading the music. It's, it's Arminianism. That school has had eight revivals like this over the years, and it keeps happening there because it's part of their culture. This one, by the way, wasn't spontaneous. It was designed to fit with a special day. Uh, February 23rd, I think, was the sort of historic day. But there may have been some kids who, in the middle of all of that, understood the gospel and were converted. But it was it was a panoply of everything, and to to cover it all with the word revival, which carries the weight of believing this is a massive work of God. Only time would tell that. And that's I mean nobody's better on revival than than the prophets, and then in history it's Jonathan Edwards. It's all about the distinguishing marks, isn't it, of, of true revival and false revival. And, and that's what you're talking about with the remnant and ministering to the remnant. And that's been such a theme of your ministry with this idea of wheat and tares, of the, na- the need of assessing a genuine work of God on the basis of God's Word, not just on emotion or uh, even apparent success. Yeah, look, for for most of those kids, I'm afraid... It wasn't about Christ. It was about the chords. It was about singing the same words for 20 minutes in a row in some mesmerizing kind of pseudo-spiritual experience that had no relationship to sound doctrine, to the depth of the gospel. I would like to know if that same revival would have occurred without the music. Shut the music down and let's find out what God is really doing. Hmm. But, you know, one of the reasons that um, that kind of music dominates, that Hillsong kind of music and Elevation kind of music is psychologically it takes people uh, to to kind of a level of hypnosis. It, um, It has the power to... Um, loosen their resistance, and you could almost suggest anything. Uh, if you look at Christian hymns, classic Christian hymns, they have a 4-4 four, four beat. They have a 6-4 beat. They have a rhythm that is um, firm, and that's, that's a kind of militancy. We're talking about a mighty fortress is our God. That's not mood music. (laughs) 
So I, I think I think you can induce the pseudo feeling that they think is spirituality when it really has nothing to do with that. Mac, how do you stay encouraged? Uh, pastors sometimes find themselves discouraged because of some of the truths we've talked about, because of the hard heartedness, because of the the degeneracy of culture. Uh, how are you encouraged in these days in what you're seeing in the church, in ministry? What, what reports are coming in that, that stir your heart? What is it in your life that brings you joy and further fuels the endurance that you're so norm, known for uh, now? Well, what's there to be discouraged about? Christ said, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I read the ending. We win. I mean, getting there has the ups and downs of, of life, but, but the victory is already won. Uh, I love Paul's statement that we always triumph in Christ. You, you should never be discouraged. If you're discouraged about your ministry, you're probably evaluating it wrongly. Uh, and if you're doing the right thing, feeding the flock of God, setting a godly example, uh, loving the people of God, preaching the Word with power and conviction, you, you're going to see the true fruit. Uh, and that's where the encouragement comes from. Well, you're a tremendous encouragement to us. You've shown true grit in just showing up here today. And it's, it's absolutely inspirational and we're so grateful for you i do have something for you um, this is the new edition of the master seminary journal it's uh, not released yet we, we have it here at the conference available uh, it's called the word of god the pastor theologian uh, i didn't study german in seminary because i went to the master seminary and you forbid it because of the liberals so i think it's called a fetch shrift but that's, that's how you say it in New Mexico. I, I don't know. Fresh shrift. But this is a fresh shrift in honor of John MacArthur. What? We dedicated this spring 2023 edition to you um, for a few reasons. The year 2023 is an anniversary in English church history. Uh, 500 years ago, 1523, Tyndale traveled to London to advocate for a new English translation of the Bible, uh, one that derived directly from Hebrew and, and Greek and Tyndale was committed to getting God's words into the hands and hearts of English-speaking Christians. Similarly, 37 years ago, 1986, the Master Seminary was established with that same exact heart and intention, a steadfast commitment to the centrality of God's word. And so uh, the faculty put this together. Guest, uh, guests uh, weighed in. There's 20 articles devoted to uh, your ministry Pastor John, and the work that God has done here at GCC. Steve Lawson wrote on the pastor theologian and the blood-stained uh, Word of God, the history of the English Bible. Uh, we have Feinberg, an old print of a high view of Scripture. Uh, 
coaches in there, The Courage of the Pastor Theologian. H.B. wrote Jesus, the Ultimate Preacher. So this is an encouragement. I know you guys will love to get this either online in electronic form or, or a fancy paper copy like this one. But, John, we just want to honor you for uh, all that you've done in investing in all of us uh, through your ministry. And we're just so deeply grateful for you, my friend. say I feel like I've just attended my own funeral. <laughs> you you did a podcast on replacing me. I wouldn't put it like that. I didn't put it like that, but I will say this when we released our MacArthur Center podcast, please like and subscribe. Uh our, our final episode of season two is on the successor. We're working on season three right now. We just recorded last week about 45 minutes of material for uh, season. The theme of this season is the, uh, the endurance. Uh, we want to talk about endurance in ministry, and you're such an example of that. But uh, this was right before we released it in December, I think, and then you were in the hospital early in the year. And I think the first phone call we had, you said something like, this is your fault for that successor thing. So... I deny the allegation, um, but, you know, I, I'm just grateful you're here, John, and we're yeah. all so grateful you're here. And Hebrews 13:7 says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. So thank you for your integrity, your leadership, and for, for leading this conference and so many ministers who seek to follow in your footsteps so faithfully and well. Thank you very much. We're grateful. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. 
Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and by Lord, I'm writing this to you. I really hope you hear my heart. When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start. Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning, way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions. It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity. Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly. Billions, billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time. Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago. 
long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same, immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change, forever you reign, you remain the Just the other day, how you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence, you are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man, according to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan, I changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us, all that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust, shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean, but my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same. All of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies Still you pursue relentlessly At times I wonder how this can be Surely it's because of the cross Where Jesus paid the full penalty And bore the burden of sin's great cost I'm saved by grace and faith in God I look to Christ and I trust He died So even though I'm being sanctified I can't be any more justified His work is finished that cannot change And with this knowledge I am free Forever this grace it will remain Because of what happened on Calvary As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change
And now this is from this is Apollo GS Studios. This is their YouTube uh, channel. And this part is talking about how uh, Jesus fulfilled uh, prophecy. So this particular text is amazing in terms of prophecy. Hundreds of years before Jesus comes, it predicts that what's going to happen is they're going to finish the transgression. There's going to be an end to sin, atonement for iniquity, everlasting righteousness, sealing up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy one. That's the end chapter 9. And it says, and it's an amazing prophecy, it literally nails the timing of the Messiah, which is why they were so expectant at that time, because they knew that this is the time of the Messiah. They could count and uh, the Messiah was going to come, be cut off, and then the second temple was going to be destroyed. So here's the point. Why read Daniel 9 at the start of the show? This is the point. Brandon Robertson, progressive gay pastor, and I mean that literally. He's gay. Um, he said that the Old Testament doesn't prophesy Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 is not about Jesus. We're going to talk about that today, his comments that were during our discussion with him and comments he's had elsewhere. But prophecies like this are some of the most amazing things to examine as a Christian because it shows the divine inspiration of Scripture that hundreds of years before the Messiah comes, it nails everything about him, where he's coming from, Bethlehem. It nails, of course, the details of who he is, his person, that he's got himself, Isaiah 9, uh, 6 through 7. It is El Gabor, the mighty God. That's the title of Yahweh, the true God, by the way. This son who is coming, this child, is going to be Yahweh himself. It nails the timing of his coming, when he's coming, Daniel chapter 9. It nails his death for sin, that he would be um, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our well-being would be upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Um, he was numbered with the transgressors, but he justifies the many as he bears their iniquities. Uh, he's pierced through for our transgressions. Uh, they, they pierce his hands and his feet. They're like dogs wagging their head at him. Uh, they cast lots for his clothing. All of those details are there in the Old Testament long before Jesus comes. And he gets even deeper that in terms of the symbolism. But this particular prophecy, as complex as it is, it nails what Jesus accomplishes. He brings an everlasting righteousness. He makes atonement for iniquity. He makes an end of sin. They finish the transgression, which is what Jesus says they were doing. Fill up then the measure, right? Like they were God's, God's covenant people. There's always a remnant, but they are sinning and violating uh, God's law, and they are sinning against Yahweh himself. They keep doing that in perpetuity throughout their relationship to him, and the promise was that this is going to hit a climax, and God's going to deal with it. There's going to be redemption, salvation, atonement, purification, and judgment at the coming of the Messiah. We're going to talk about some of that stuff today. But in what you're saying thematically, there's bullet points, boom. And subpoints, and subpoints. Boom. Like I know. You it's could just an outline. You could just make a beautiful faith-increasing Bible study. That's another. right. That's what this shows me. And now here is Lodi Welcome from, this is from the YouTube channel called The Veracity. And this says, this is indicating the Christians, the ones that have been born again and born for above, uh, why you shouldn't fear death. And this is also done by Lodi Welcome. Knowing that Death will come to us all is one thing. 
But having hope in spite of the fact that you know that is another. No one gets a, a diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis, and then high-fives the doctor. And so there is this tension, right? For me to live is Christ, but to, to die is gain. There is this tension. So how do we have hope in the midst of this tension? And I believe here in Revelation 21, we, we have a, a wonderful answer to that question. Four things I want us to see here in this text. First, that the believer has hope of a world that is better than this one. We have hope of a world that's better than this one. And that's incredibly important because it helps us to realize in those moments where we're, where we're clinging to life, it, it, it helps us to realize that, you know, we're clinging to something when God has promised us something better. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The idea here is, is not just that this is something that's better, but that this is something that this first heaven and first earth were pointing it is the fulfillment. It is the reality. It is the ultimate hope. And there's nothing better coming after the new heaven and the new earth. It's as good as it gets because it is the redemption of the heavens and the earth. The new heavens and the new earth is this redemption of what has been fallen and corrupted. There is a sense in which we see the creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and then there's the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And ever since that fall, not only man, but the world itself has been subjected to corruption. And here we see that that corruption will end, and there will be not a better heaven and a better earth, but a new Redeemed heaven and earth. The redemption is seen not only in what is present, but in this text, also what is absent, the sea. It is interesting, he makes that point, that the sea is no more. What, what is this a reference to? Well, there are a number of references here. But if we look, for example, in other parts of Revelation and other parts of the scriptures, especially Isaiah, which is relied on heavily here in Revelation 21, we see this, this sea as this place of cosmic evil. Revelation 12:17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God. And hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. In 13.1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. With ten diadems on his horns. And blasphemous names on its heads. Isaiah 57.20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet. And its waters Toss up mire and dirt. 
But not only that, but the sea is also understood to be the place of the dead, that the sea will give up its dead at the end of the age. Revelation 20, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So the sea here is this ominous picture. And again in Isaiah 51, 10 and 11. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. There are no ominous things in the new heaven and the new earth. There is nothing to fear in the new heaven and the new earth. All of those things that currently characterize the sufferings that we endure and the corruptions that we endure will be gone. They will be no more. They will not be present. They will not be part of the new heaven and the new earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is, this is not the old Jerusalem fixed up, uh, Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Notice what he says here in 21. He sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Dressed for her husband. Dressed in what? Dressed in these fine linens, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. So we see that this, this new Jerusalem, this bride of Christ, is about the people who have been made righteous by Christ himself. We see a picture of this in Ephesians chapter 5. We, we know it well. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and also gave himself up for her. Why? that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, preparing her, making her ready for this day. That is our hope. Our hope is that God is going to restore all things. There will be new heaven, new earth, a new Jerusalem, and God's people will be redeemed and restored and made completely righteous. Folks, this place is not our home. It was never meant to satisfy us, and it never will. When we know and love the word and are familiar with the word, make sure that we know and love the whole word and are familiar with the whole word and don't run away from this book because it is meant to encourage the people of God in the midst of dark and trying days. Not only do we have hope of a better world, importantly than that, we have hope of a life in the presence of God himself. That, that, that's more significant. Amen. New heaven, new earth, awesome. But new heaven, new
themselves, then it wouldn't really matter how new this heaven and this earth were. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And here is the point of it all. The point of it all is that this is a dwelling place for God and his people, that he will dwell with his people, and that God himself will be with them as their God. I'm astonished by the fact that everybody wants to go to heaven, but a large percentage of them don't want Jesus. There are people who want nothing to do with Jesus and nothing to do with the church, but they want to go to heaven when they die. It makes no sense whatsoever, because ultimately heaven is about a place where we will dwell with our God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That there will be no separation of our lives where we, 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 we go and, you know, six days of the week that we go and that we labor and then we come on that seventh day and that seventh day is that day that we come and have the Lord's Day and we have, no, every day, every day is the Lord's Day. Every day is dwelling in the presence of God. Every day is communion with God himself, perfect, unbroken communion with God himself. That is what we anticipate. That is what our hope is. Beloved, if you don't love God's place and God's people now, what makes you think not only that you're going to inherit a place with God and God's people forever, but what makes you think that you belong there? Not any particular group of people's hope. This is the believer's hope. Why is it our hope? Jesus answers that question. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house, many rooms, and I go and prepare a place for you. Why does he go and prepare a place for us? So that where he is, we may be also. Thirdly, the believer has hope of complete healing. And the older you are, the bigger amen that gets. But I don't just mean the healing of your body. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now this harkens back to verse 1. In verse 1, listen carefully. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Here, the former things had passed away. And then he says, and the sea was no more. Here he says, death shall be no more. So there's a connection here. There are things that God is doing away with. God is doing away with death, but he's also doing away with all of those things that plague us, number one, in this current heaven and this current earth, and number two, in these current bodies. 
And he's not just talking about physically our bodies being made new and these ailments being taken care of. But notice he's talking about mourning being gone and crying being gone and pain being gone. And he's not talking about arthritis. Second Corinthians 4, 7 to 10. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. But there will come a day when that is no more. We all have scars. But when the believer has a hope of heaven, they don't define us. Our hope does. The believer also has a hope. Perfect justice. Look at verses 5 through 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, he will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second the declaration that these words are trustworthy and true, are coupled with the identification of God himself as the I am, as the Alpha, and as the Omega, as the beginning and the end. These things are trustworthy and true because of who God is. The believer has a hope of heaven because our hope comes from God himself that those who come to faith in Christ and those who, those who endure by God's grace, these individuals will be rewarded at the end of the age to remember that individuals who have been listed throughout the book of Revelation, the cowardly, which is the opposite of the one who conquers, the faithless, the detestable murderers, the sexually immoral. We've heard all about this in Revelation 18 with the great prostitute, sorcerers, idolaters. We've heard about that from the beginning of, verse, of, of Revelation. And liars, their portion is in the lake of fire. Well, what does all of, this, all of this mean? What all of this means is that there will be justice at the end of the age. That is why Paul could tell us in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Everything will be made right in the here and now, but it will be made right. He is the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end. He is not saying, this is your hope of heaven, God willing. He's saying, this is your hope of heaven, I'm God. So, beloved, as you face your trials and your temptations, and as you come to those moments in your life where death looms larger than usual, Hold on to this hope.
And now to do from this is from Wretched Radio. Well, it's actually their YouTube page. Um, and this is called this is called an earnest challenge to our charismatic friends. Put your gloves down. I do not intend to punch you in the nose. Instead, I want to genuinely, lovingly challenge you to defend your belief that Christians can speak in an ecstatic language that you call tongues. Now, after these initial six questions, I'm going to lay out a thesis statement on tongues you just might find compelling. But first, here are some questions for you to ponder. Scripture commands tongue speaking requires an interpreter. My question for you is, have you ever seen or heard an interpreter at a gathering when tongue speaking occurred consistently? Gifts are for the edification of the body. So if someone is merely speaking indiscernibly without an interpreter, then you should ask, hmm, is this really biblical? Number two, because spiritual gifts are for the edification of the body, building up of the saints. How does modern-day glossolalia edify you as a disciple of Jesus? Be specific. Does it teach you more about the Lord? Does it teach you more about his word? Or does it leave you with just kind of an odd feeling like, oh, the Spirit, he's really present here. If speaking in tongues isn't interpreted and it cannot edify you, Cognitively, biblically, maybe it's not biblical. Number three, what's your explanation for other religions that speak in tongues that sound quite similar to the speaking in tongues we hear in Christian circles? I think it's fair to say either those pagans are pretending or Christians are pretending, or even worse, there's a different spirit, not the Holy Spirit, at work in one or both of them, zoinks. Number four, spiritual gifts are just that. They are gifts. Each Christian is given at least one unique gift upon being saved. So please explain why we have tongue teaching classes and schools to teach a gift. Tongues is either a gift or it's not. It isn't something that you can learn. Number six, thanks for hanging in there. Church history is certainly not on the same level as scripture, but as we look back through church history, we see kind of a spotty history of tongues. The groups that spoke in an ecstatic language, they were inevitably deemed as outside of orthodoxy further. Why did the Lord seem to wait for 2,000 years to make the gifts of tongues such a prominent and prevalent gift? It's worth asking these questions. So here's my challenge for you. Would you be willing to just just hang in there with me? Let's take someone who speaks in tongues. And if that person spoke in tongues and 10 people with the gift of interpretation wrote down their interpretation of that message, do you have a high level of confidence that they would all match perfectly? If that challenge 
or any of the preceding six questions perhaps has caused you to question the gift of tongues as we see it practiced so universally these days, might I suggest there's a better explanation for all of the tongue verses. Here's my thesis state. Tongues in Acts is clearly a gift of speaking in a foreign language, and as it is difficult to make a biblical case, that the gift of foreign languages has definitively ceased. And as Paul was not advocating for speaking in an ecstatic language in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, but encouraging the careful use of phonetic languages. And as we've heard some credible reports on the mission field of receiving the gift of speaking a foreign language, we can reasonably conclude that while God may give someone the ability to speak in a foreign language that can be understood by a native or one with the gift of interpretation. There never was, nor should be, a gift of ecstatic language that doesn't edify the body. There you have it, my charismatic friend. This is a hotly debated subject, so let's do that. Let's debate this issue, but could we please do it without the hot part discuss? Welcome. Hi, I'm Johnny Erickson Tata. When I was reading in Genesis, I came across chapter 18, where Abraham says, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Although I am but dust and ashes, oh my goodness, to think that he, Abraham, actually talked with God. Yikes. It was enough to lay him low and cause him to say, who am I? I'm just a little pile of of dust and ashes in God's presence. Oh my goodness, do I need to have that attitude when I talk to Jesus, when I pray. I need to forget about being casual. I mean, come on, we're conversing with the unseen creator of the universe as though he were standing visibly and terribly in front of us. How long has it been since you have felt the dust and ashes while praying to God? If talking to the Lord does not strike you as being one of the most extraordinary privileges you could imagine, then perhaps Genesis 18 is a good place to get a good perspective on prayer. It's all about humbling yourself in God's presence. Hi, I'm John Erickson Tata. You know, once when I was feeling really discouraged because of a a long battle with pneumonia, uh, someone gave me a little stone plaque for my bedside table and it read if God has brought you to it then he will bring you through it I kept it on my table so I could see it and be reminded of this really powerful truth every single day and actually the same thought is echoed in Psalm 23 isn't it yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I'll fear no evil for thou art with me friend whatever you're going through God led you into it He led you to that valley that you're in right now, and he has no intention of you staying there. He's going to walk you through it, all the way to the other end. 
After all, if God brings you to it, he will bring you through it, right? The valley is not endless. There is a horizon. And until you reach it, be encouraged. In fact, in fact memorize it, would you, right now? If hope's hard to find, carry these words with you. If God has brought you to it, then he will bring you through it. You keep saying that today. I love the verse that says, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Now, God may not have kept you from affliction, but he has kept you from perishing in it. After all, you're still here, right? And so am I. And oh, think of the many times you've staked your life on God's word and didn't even realize it. I mean, every morning he awakens you with grace, washes away your sins, and grants you salvation. You've got escape from hell, a purpose for living, and a home in heaven. He works everything for your good and grants you the honor of bearing his name and representing his character. Oh, friend, if we can but remember these good things when we are suffering, then we won't perish. And your soul will not shrivel up and die. So keep delighting in the word of God, and he will keep you from perishing until that bright, beautiful day when he takes us all home. And there'll be no more suffering. Can creationists be scientists? This is Ken Ham, and we now have a popular streaming service called Answers TV. Do creationists conduct scientific research? Absolutely. And I'll share with you this week some of that exciting research. But it's important to know that most of the time, science has nothing to do with evolution or even origins at all. Observational science involves testing and observing in the present. Now, what about historical science? Well, you can't directly test and observe the past. So this is where evolutionists and creationists disagree. As we'll see this week, creationists study things like fossils and geology to learn more about the past. The difference, though, is our starting point. Our starting point is God's infallible word. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com. You'll learn more about creation, science, and the Bible at AnswersRadio.com.
folded, not fractured. This is Ken Ham, editor of the popular series of books called The Answers Book for Kids. In the Grand Canyon, there are rock layers that were somehow folded. Now, hard rocks can't fold, they'll fracture. So how'd this happen? Well, there are two views. One, these layers were slowly laid down over millions of years and heated and bent. Two, these layers were rapidly laid down by a flood a few thousand years ago and bent while they were soft. Creation geologist Dr. Andrew Snelling is the first scientist to test to see which view matches the evidence. And he found no evidence the rocks were ever heated and then bent. The rocks must have been rapidly laid down by a massive flood and then bent while they were still soft. Discover more evidence for the global flood of Genesis when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Bible book, 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 Bible book,
Species? This is Ken Ham, editor of the evolutionary expose, Glasshouse, Shattering the Myth of Evolution. Evolutionists believe species arise very, very slowly, over tens of thousands of years. Creationists believe that God created creatures according to their kinds, with new species forming within those original kinds in just a few thousand years. A creation biologist, Dr. Jensen, use this biblical framework to form a testable prediction of how quickly species form. Later, a study done by evolutionists on Darwin's famous finches revealed they're forming new species very quickly, at a rate that matches what Dr. Jensen predicted, starting with the Bible. Creationists make testable predictions because God's word is true. There's much more to learn when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped to believe and defend the truth of God's Word when you go to our website, AnswersRadio.com.
Helium or no helium? This is Ken Ham and our popular Ark Encounter attraction is located in Northern Kentucky. Evolutionists believe that radioactive decay in rocks take millions of years. Now creationists believe radioactive decay greatly sped up during creation week and then during Noah's flood. Which view is confirmed by the evidence? Well, when certain radioactive elements decay, helium is released. This helium quickly escapes from rock crystals. So if radioactive decay really takes millions of years, most of the helium should be long gone. A group of creationist geologists tested this and found large amounts of helium in rock crystals. Once again, the evidence directly confirms the biblical model and opposes the evolutionary one. Discover more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to the family-friendly Ark Encounter with a life-size Noah's Ark when you go to AnswersRadio.com. I want to thank you for saying Christy Toll Radio. Um, you can also hear us in, um, on Spotify and also Apple and um, that we're currently on um, Wild Talk Radio website uh, uh, platform. And please check us out for more information on how to help us out financially and then also just see more about us at truthbetoldradio.com. And then you could um, also uh, email us at truth be told radio show at gmail.com thanks for listening again and until next time this is yancy and friends and the viability and bye for now Family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. 
VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.